I want to welcome everyone to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Liam Clifford. And I'm your host, Rosemary Giles. And today we are here with Sarah, Sarah Duodu, um, a history MA student here at Western. Sarah, we want to welcome you to the show. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. We've got an absolutely cracking episode coming out. So I am looking forward to this conversation. But for starters, we always like to ask a little bit about yourself. So if you could tell us a little bit about that and then how you got to Western. Yeah, um, so as Liam said, my name is Sarah. I am a history master's student here at Western. Um, I wasn't always sure that I would study history. I thought <laughs> I had a lot of big plans when I was a child. I wanted to be a dentist and I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to be a psychologist. And then I came to Western to study economics and business. And then after my first year taking a couple of history courses, I decided that <laughs> maybe business wasn't the route for me. And so I kind of stuck it down in history. I also did a major in political science in my undergrad also at Western. Um, so I studied history and political science. And then when I had the opportunity to apply to grad school it seemed kind of natural that I would um, apply to Western and do a master's degree in history if I had the opportunity and so that's kind of how I landed here in history after thinking of doing a lot of other things in my life. That's amazing well the history <laughs> department is definitely wonderful. Um, so what research are you doing uh, for your master's then? Yeah, so my master's research is an American history paper, um, and it's centered around the Red Summer, which happened in 1919. So they were race riots that took place in the United States. Um, and there were white people who were enacting violence against Black Americans at the time. Um, and I thought it would be really interesting to study for a number of reasons. And so um, basically, my research looks at this Red Summer as the anchor to my research, and I compare reporting in newspapers during the Red Summer to reporting before the Red Summer and after the Red Summer to see if the reporting changes over time, if there are patterns that can be distinguished and things like that. Very interesting. And I think we're, we're off to a great start um, as this topic is so obviously pertinent in our modern day and age. Tell me this much, why did you decide to focus on the Red Summer when unfortunately there are lots of instances and examples that you could use for racial inequity in the United States' history? Yeah, it's actually because of what happened last year. So in 2020, when there was all the racial unrest in the United States, and there was all the protests that were going on in the United States, and I would just sit at home because it was COVID and we couldn't really go anywhere. I was sitting at home watching the news and just on social media, and you could see how the reporting differed based on which news outlets were reporting on it. And so I was kind of thinking to myself, how has this played out in history? And it just so happens that the Red Summer was pretty much a hundred years ago, right? And so it worked out nicely just in terms of timelines. So I was like, well, let's compare, I guess what's happening now to what happened in history. And the Red Summer was kind of that point in time. It's kind of similar contexts almost because there was uh, the Spanish influenza or the 1919 flu um, that kind of helped to, to allow people to have this time to themselves, I guess, which is what we saw with COVID where people had time to themselves to think and reflect. And so the parallels were kind of too, too good to pass up on for a research paper. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's still a topic that's super relevant today. So I guess my next question would be, what were you expecting to find in this research? Um, I guess, what were some of your expectations and were those the same as the actual outcomes that you found? Yeah, I think when I came into it, I kind of expected that 
newspapers would report on the Red Summer or just Black people in general in ways that kind of uh, didn't present them in the best light just because of the context of the time, how uh, racism was still very prevalent. It, is, it still is now, but very much so back then. Um, it was Jim Crow America at the time, right? All those Jim Crow laws that were preventing Black people from pretty much doing anything. Um, and so I thought that the newspapers would kind of reflect that climate in the United States. And while they did that, I found that the newspapers also made this or they created this link between blackness and criminality, which is not something that I expected. I kind of just expected that they wouldn't be favorable towards black people, but they were doing, they were going out of their way essentially to present black people as criminals. And we see that from as early as 1917, which is where my research starts up until 1921, which is where my research ends. And so while I was kind of expecting to see those kinds of patterns, it was kind of a shock to me that there was such like an explicit um, effort to make black people criminals and to make white people less um, criminal, I guess. It's it's very interesting how almost a, a pseudo form of genetics came to the forefront in trying to distinguish, you know, white people as, you know, people to aspire towards and black people depicted as the exact opposite. Now, with these strong feelings and 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 prevalent emotions still coming up to the modern day, where do we base this in terms of context? How did the Red Summer really get its start? What sort of antecedents were there? Yeah, so the Red Summer is kind of interesting because it comes after Reconstruction, which is when everyone thought that America was kind of on the come up and kind of putting racial violence and racial um, tensions behind them. And so and then there was the First World War, where a lot of Black people thought this would be their opportunity to be able to um, to kind of earn their citizenship and to earn the right to, to be treated as equals in the United States. But then the Red Summer happens in 1919. And the question is, why does that happen? And so one of the reasons is that there was uh, the Great Migration, which kind of started in 1915, which is when a lot of Southern Black people started moving towards the North. Um, and as more people were moving towards the North and they were being I guess, pushed into black neighborhoods known as the Black Belt in a lot of these cities. Um, it, it created more racial tension, I think, especially in the North because there were just more black people and they were kind of encroaching on the way of life that people in the North were, were so accustomed to. Um, and so a lot of that racial violence is rooted in just black people, first and foremost, coming back from the war and having greater expectations from the nation that they just gave their lives for. But then also in the North, we see that there are just more black people and they're kind of trying to make better lives for themselves. And that was kind of challenging the ideals of white supremacy at the time. And so that created a lot of tension and it kind of just erupted in 1919. It kind of seemed to start out of nowhere and then it ended out of nowhere as well in November of 1919. And so it seems like just in a few months, there was a lot of racial tension that kind of came to a head and then dissipated, I guess you could say. Now, was this violence um, localized or was it was it happening all over the United States? It was happening all over the United States. So when I first started looking to the Red Summer, I kind of knew about it in the context of Chicago because there are a lot of books written about it in the context of Chicago. And that was one of the places where most or a lot of the violence took place. But then as I continued to look into it, there, there were riots that took place across the United States. So there were riots in Maryland. There were riots in Washington, D.C., Chicago, as I mentioned. Then you go all the way as south as Texas. You have riots in Georgia. Essentially, it happened all across the United States. And so I thought that was particularly 
particularly interesting because it wasn't just that it happened in one state or one part of the United States, it was happening literally everywhere. And so it's hard to make an argument that racism only existed in some parts of the United States when we saw that these things were happening across the entire nation at the time. So I do have a follow-up question for you then. Sorry to cut you off there, Liam, but uh, you mentioned that you were using newspapers to do a lot of this research. So how did you, because I'm thinking, did you look at every U.S. newspaper, if this is something that was widespread, or how did you decide what newspapers you were going to look at and which newspapers you wouldn't look at? Yeah, so a lot of it comes down to what newspapers were available to me, Um, and there are actually quite a few newspapers available that are digitized. They used to sites like newspapers.com and ProQuest, and so there were a lot of newspapers available, and so I thought particularly for the white newspapers, I was kind of like, what are the mainstream newspapers? And then also, what are the newspapers that had the most reporting about the Red Summer, or just about um, racial violence in the United States? Because then it would give me a broader base to work from. So some examples of those are the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Hartford Current, the Atlanta Constitution. Those are just some of the ones that I relied on heavily in my paper. And then when it came to Black newspapers, those are a little harder to come by, um, especially because they weren't as popular in the early 20th century and so there were only a few of them that I was able to use for my research and so the Chicago Defender, uh, the Baltimore Afro-American as well as the California Eagle are the three black newspapers that I used for my research mostly because those are ones that have digitized copies available Um, and so I tried to also compare them to reporting Um, from white newspapers in the same state. So like the counterparts of the Chicago Defender would be the Chicago Tribune, um, and then the California Eagle, it would be the LA Times and so on and so forth. So I tried to be able to have that kind of comparison to to be able to make those claims that I wanted to in my paper. No, absolutely. And I think focusing on the source material is so important as we know uh, as historians, Um, it really makes or break the quality of our own work. Now, all of the um, Black-oriented newspapers you had mentioned appeared to be located in the northern United States. Were there any Black newspapers that were even allowed to exist uh, in the South at this time? Yeah, so there were newspapers in the South that exist- existed at the time. They were definitely few and far between, um, and they definitely don't have them digitized. And for the most part, a lot of these newspapers, so like, for example, the Baltimore Afro-American came to be because of church publications that came together to create their own, I guess, newspaper that they would distribute nationally. Um, And so while churches had their own publications, they weren't necessarily on the same scale as these larger newspapers until later into the 20th century. And so while they existed, they didn't exist on the same scale as the ones that I I mentioned. That makes a lot of sense. Um, So then since you're looking at these, these I guess, contrasting these different newspapers, how did you find the reporting was different? Like, Did you find a big difference in the way that events were reported? Yeah, so one of the the big findings that um, I came to, I came across, I kind of stumbled across really just from reading a lot of these newspapers is the use of kind of um, racial descriptors before uh, someone's title. So for example, in the early part of my paper, I talk about um, soldiers who would return from the war and how newspapers report on that. And so uh, my search terms were like just soldier or like Negro and soldier to see how they reported on that. And so in the white newspapers, they always said the race of the black soldier whenever they were committing crimes, especially. So it'd be like, uh, like black soldier committed X, Y, and Z crime, right? And it's really interesting because then the black newspapers just soldier, no matter who committed the crime, it's just soldier. There's no racial descriptor beforehand. 
Um, whereas in the body of the, the article, then they do go into detail about who it was. But I think there was like an effort to try and provide some balanced reporting in Black newspapers, whereas white newspapers, as I mentioned before, were trying to create that link between Blackness and criminality. Because if they only use the word Black before, um, I guess, Black soldiers who committed crimes and not white soldiers, then I guess the logical conclusion would be that white soldiers weren't committing crimes because they're not writing about them in the newspapers. Mm, very interesting indeed. And, and it's clear that there is a desire to construct a certain narrative here. Could you just remind us again what, you, what the overarching theme that you took from your research is? Yeah, so the, from my initial searches, just looking at all the articles that I had available to me kind of created this link between Blackness and criminality. And so the theme that I'm kind of carrying throughout my paper is that white newspapers created a link between Blackness and criminality that kind of extended throughout the period that I'm studying, so 1917 to 1921, um, even when it can be easily disproved that that wasn't the case. So the Red Summer of 1919 is the perfect case study because these are white people committing crimes, and yet newspapers have to go out of their way to try and make Black people who are the victims, all of a sudden the perpetrators of the crime or find a way to blame them for the crime. And so that's something that was really interesting that I found that even when white people were the criminals and were the ones committing the crimes, there had to be a concerted effort on the, on the part of the white newspapers to make sure that they were still carrying this idea that Black people are criminals because that justifies all of the Jim Crow laws. So all of the, all of the I guess, um, all of the repressive laws that they put in place and so they had to justify that somehow and that's how they did it. Could you maybe give us an example or talk a bit more broadly about the way that these acts of violence were being reported? I mean obviously you said that um, you know there's a big difference in the way that that violence and crimes were being reported between white and black Americans but how how did that play out during the red summer? What did it sound like, look like, read like when when it was the white Americans committing these acts of violence? Yeah, there's there are a lot of ways that white newspapers tried to conceal uh, the crimes of the white people, uh, but it was always just very ambiguous. So, or, so one of the examples is like they would say this happened, but they wouldn't say who did the thing. Mm -hmm. So it'd be like um, black man was shot and it's like, okay, that's, mm. that's good to know that this person was shot, but who shot this person? Or um, they would also portray the white people as victims instead of, I guess, acknowledging their role in the violence. So one story that I read or one example of a story that I read is of a mob of black or a mob of white men, sorry, who forcibly removed a black man from a streetcar. And then while they were trying to do this, he shot at them in self-defense. Then the newspaper went on to say, white men were wounded in this altercation it's like well how did this start how did we get to this point right and it's not to say that the black man didn't do anything i like the whole point is that there were different people who had different roles in this but white newspapers only ever focused on the role of the black people and tried to make them out to be criminals and white people as victims in order to to kind of perpetuate that narrative and so those are some of the examples or types of stories that we saw um, during the red summer now, tell me this much, Sarah, with the examples um, of cases for constructing this narrative apparent, did you see any difference between 
of white newspapers reporting in the north and white newspapers reporting in the south. And essentially what I'm trying to gauge here is whether the vitriol was equal across both or whether you found one was more salient for lack of better term than the other. They definitely both <laughs> fell, fell into the same patterns in reporting, um, regardless of whether it was the North or the South, they definitely tried to absolve white people of guilt no matter what. But something that was super interesting in Northern newspapers is kind of this, even in Black newspapers as well, there's kind of this air of shock that this could happen in the North. Um, so like one, one newspaper was basically like, oh, we see this kind of thing happen in like the South all the time, but you would never expect this to happen in the North, which is kind of a trend that um, played out in the Northern newspapers, especially in black newspapers I found, which was really interesting to me. Uh, like they would say things like, oh, we have willing allies in the North who want to help us. So we should work to, to help them help us, things like that, which I found was really interesting because you would think that with all this violence going on, they wouldn't, I guess, turn to, to try and defend these people, but I think they're trying to preserve, uh, the, I guess, the balance that they had created in the North. And I think it's also important to note that the newspaper editors and authors for Black newspapers were definitely like the Black elite. So like the middle class, as opposed to, I guess, more common people, right? And so their opinions didn't necessarily, necessarily reflect the entire Black community. And so that's kind of a way to explain why that may have been, but it's just really interesting to see uh, that that's how it played out. That's really interesting that you say that. And I mean, this is totally hypothetical here, but would there be any way of finding a more broad voice? I, like, are there any other sources that you could call upon or are there not really that many? I definitely didn't come across too many in my own research. And I think it's just because of the availability of, I guess, what was published at the time, what was I guess talked about through word of mouth and so the newspapers that were published obviously they had to be written by people who could read and write so who were educated and that usually tended to be the black elite at this time just because of just how recently slavery had been abolished in the united states and so it was just really difficult to find i guess a more broad voice and so the the assumption is that these black newspapers spoke for the black people at the time but really they reflect a very specific uh, point of view and I guess the same could be said to a certain extent for white newspapers like I don't think any of these groups are monolithic I don't think that they all have just one collective thought process but I think it's more more evident with the black newspapers just because of even in the newspapers how it played out um, kind of seeing those class differences play out in the black newspapers um, even in how they reported on events definitely made it clear that these were the black elite talking and not necessarily um, a voice for everyone. It's, and I think it's fascinating to bring up that intersectionality between socioeconomic standing and race and how that, you know, changes the perspectives across the different categories that we have assigned. Now, I'm looking at the end of your time period and I'm seeing 1921. And we know that, of course, it was until the 1950s where we had that massive push that was, was famously headed by Martin Luther King. Were these Black papers at any point in time during their existence, instruments of promoting civil rights for African-Americans at the time. Yeah, they definitely were. And I think that a lot of the people who had articles published in their newspapers or, or even the editors and authors for these newspapers, they were definitely champions of civil rights at the time and fighting for, I guess, more, more rights for black Americans at the time, just not to the same extent, I guess, as we saw, or as prominent 
um, as we saw in the latter half of the 20th century. And so some of these people who did have articles published in the black newspapers were fighting for uh, greater equality. And so, for example, like W.E.B. Du Bois, um, he was a champion of, <laughs> of black American rights at the time. And so he wrote in some of these newspapers, but he also had uh, his, I guess, I think it's a pamphlet or newspaper called The Crisis. Um, and so he wrote in there frequently about black people needing to advocate for themselves better and gain more rights for themselves. And so they were definitely, there were definitely people who were doing that with the newspapers. Um, it's just not, I guess, as broadly written about um, as the latter part of the 20th century. Did you find that those articles that were included in the newspapers ever used the Red Summer kind of in their writing to, or was it not explicitly mentioned? Does that make sense? Uh, in black newspapers? Yeah, or white newspapers? yeah, black newspapers. Um, in black newspapers, they kind of just re referred to it as like the, the racial violence, mm -hmm. right? Like it's, I think at the time, it's hard to I think it's at the time it was hard to conceptualize how broad this might have been at, um, across the United States. I think like you're very much focused on what's going on for you, right? So like if you're in Chicago, you have riots going on and you're kind of more concerned with that. And I don't think not all newspaper publications had as wide a reach or as wide a, a scope. So they didn't necessarily have, um, I guess, they weren't able to view, I guess, what was going on as far out as the rest of the United States. Very interesting indeed. Now, there has been one massacre that you had mentioned in our little summary to us so that we could prep um, that took place in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921 uh, that I do think is important to touch upon. Uh, would you perhaps just want to give a brief summary as to what took place? Yeah, so um, in Tulsa in 1921, there what there happened what what is known as the Tulsa Massacre. Um, and Essentially what happened was that there was a, a teenage boy named Dick Rowland who got into an elevator in a building um, and the elevator operator was a white girl named Sarah Page. And so they got into this elevator and on the way down, uh, someone in the building heard Sarah Page scream. Then when it got to the bottom floor, Dick Rowland ran out of the elevator and nobody really knows what happened. There's very little written about what happened exactly in the elevator that day. Um, but then there was a newspaper article and I believe it's the Tulsa Tr Tribune um, on May 31st, 1921. And basically it said that the police had caught uh, the black man who had attacked a white girl. And then that evening, a white mob kind of gathered outside of the police station in Tulsa and black people came armed, just ready to defend him if need be. Um, and then a former police officer, he tried to wrestle a gun away from a black man. The gun accidentally went off and then just chaos ensued from that point forward. Um, white people were attacking black people. And there was this one black neighborhood in Tulsa uh, known as Greenwood. And the mob came to Greenwood and they started forcibly removing people from their homes. And then by the morning of June 1st, uh, the white mob had burned down the entire neighborhood. And so I think... Um, it was just, it's kind of astonishing still to think about how that just played out in the course of one night because of, I guess, one event that may or may not have mis been misconstrued in the newspapers. And so I think it's hard to say that the newspaper was the reason why this mob gathered, but there was that article that kind of said where this man, or I guess he was a boy, they referred to him as man in the article, but he is a, a boy um, where he was. And so that kind of 
was a catalyst for that. And so, yeah, and, and it was a, the Black neighborhood, Greenwood, they had built it up and it was a very prosperous neighborhood. It's known as Black Wall Street and it was very prosperous. They built it up from the ground up and it was just Black people doing, just trying to mind their business, right? And so it's, it's interesting to see how that played out. And it's only two years after the Red Summer. And so after people thought that things kind of had settled down a little bit, we saw it play out once again. That's really interesting. So you said that this happened after the Red Summer. Yes. And so then did you find that the reporting on this was similar to the way that the events of the Red Summer were reported in newspapers? Or did you find that the reporting was completely different? The reporting was similar in a lot of ways. I didn't go as in depth in this part. It was near the end of my paper and running out of space and words to write about it. Uh, but in just in reading about uh, the, the Tulsa massacre, there were definitely some similarities to the Red Summer, wherein trying not to implicate uh, like white people in their criminality. So one article even came out and said that, uh, I think it was the evening that this happened or just early morning, and they said that two white people were injured or wounded in this massacre. And so like now looking back with hindsight, we know that the majority of the victims were actually black people and the violence was targeted towards black people. So saying that like they wanted to capitalize on the fact that white people were wounded in this um, interaction is interesting but then on the other side of things um, there was a little more nuance to the, to the reporting like a little more willingness to see how either side could have been to blame for I guess what happened at the police station on the evening of the 31st of May and so I think there was a little bit more of a willingness to implicate white people in some of the newspapers but there was still uh, that same pattern um, and then just like the Red Summer it kind of the Tulsa massacre kind of disappeared from the newspapers uh, just at the end of June it was kind of gone even though there were promises of like um, investigations into what happened and some sort of reparations we didn't really see that come to fruition. Very very fascinating indeed and I mean I think it's even more essential to look at this cr critically and say you know we're about a hundred years on now and we are still struggling with, with the same issues, with the same level of resistance almost. So my question to you is, you know, regarding the uh, tragic events of, of last summer with George Floyd, do you see any similarities um, or in fact, any use in comparing these, these, these two events broadly? I think it's interesting to see that even a hundred years out, this has, continue to happen and something that's really interesting actually in my reporting I found a report put together by a black sociologist and civil ser servant Dr. George Edmund Haynes and he put together this report at the end of the red summer and it was published in all the newspapers um, in the New York Times for example and one of the one thing he said at the end of his article was basically that if we keep going along this path we won't ever find any resolution to racial just racial violence sorry and that, like it's just paraphrasing obviously what he had said but essentially he said that this could keep happening and seeing it play out last summer obviously not to the state not the same scale not the same degree it wasn't racial violence across the united states it wasn't mobs forcibly pulling people from from homes and streetcars but we're still seeing that we're still seeing those effects of racial tensions and racial prejudice i think and and the legacy of white supremacy in the united states still has a stronghold on 
just how people interact and how things play out. And so I think, well, I don't think we can compare the two necessarily, like they're not the same thing happening a hundred years later. There are some parallels and there are some important lessons I think that we can take from both of them and hopefully work towards uh, some sort of, um, some sort of end to racial violence in the United States. And I would hope that we would see that, but I'm, I'm not sure that that's on the horizon yet. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, you know, considering the events of, of course, not just uh, not just Mr. George Floyd, um, but all of the others over the, the last couple of, of years or so, um, does does bring us to pause on how we can better our society for everyone. And I, I think that's great, you know, considering what you're doing throughout the course of your paper. Uh, so I do hope it works out for you. Now, we, of course, are almost out of time, Sarah. So I will give you about 30 seconds to leave our audience with a parting message. Oh, my goodness. Okay. <laughs> parting message. Um, I think that one thing that I learned while doing my research is that it's important to be critical about everything that we're consuming. It's very easy for newspapers or really anyone to frame certain events or frame facts in a way that fit their specific agenda and their narrative. And so I think that it's just really important to always be critical of what we're consuming and, and don't always rely on the things that kind of support your own opinions. I find that I like to, to find things that back what I already believe up, but I think that it's important to be critical and to always just take that step back and think about why might they want to get this message to me? What might be the, the narrative or the agenda that they're trying to, to sell to me? And so I think that would be my parting message and what I learned from doing my research. Well, Sarah, you are sounding like a true academic. So we do wish you well in all of your school endeavors going forward. This has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Liam Clifford, and my co-host was Rosemary Giles. We've been speaking with Sarah Duodu, and this episode was produced by Laura Munoz-Bena. If you want to come involved on the show or get in contact with us, you can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at gradcastradio. To listen to us, we are on Radio Western 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select podcasts have been uploaded to YouTube at Radcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have yourself a wonderful day.